Who knows what Christmas is all about? Sure, Charlie Brown. I can tell you what Christmas is all about. Lights, please. And there were in the same country shepherds, abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them. And the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God, and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. That's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. Hmm. Yes, that's all right. You can clap for Charlie Brown. So that's what Christmas is all about. It really makes so much sense when you stop to think about it. But it's so contrary to the focus of so many of our Christmas celebrations and traditions, isn't it? If you're familiar with the story of Charlie Brown, then you know that he was dismayed at the over-commercialization and the secularism of Christmas in 1965. And if he was dismayed at the over-commercialization and the secularism of Christmas in 1965, my guess is he would be downright depressed about the state of Christmas in 2016. And it's so easy for us to get sucked into it, isn't it? So easy to get sucked into all of the parties and the gift-giving and the dinners and the traditions that really have very little to do with what happened on the first Christmas over 2,000 years ago. And it's not that there's anything intrinsically wrong with all of those things, except for the fact that if we're not careful, they will distract us from the real point of Christmas. And if, as Linus suggested, Christmas is really about peace, then what do we want for Christmas? That is the question that we've been trying to answer together this Advent season. And today we actually want to spin that question around a little bit. Because as much as we all like getting gifts, as much as we all want to find peace for ourselves, what about the gifts that we're going to be giving this Christmas. If Christmas is about peace, then what should we be giving for Christmas? And this is going to be great, because I know just like me, all of you have somebody on your list that's just impossible to shop for. Maybe it's the person who has everything, or maybe it's the person who's just so picky that no matter what you get them, no matter how much thought you've put into it, it will never be just right. We all have that person on our list where we just sit there and we scratch our heads and we say, what am I going to get them for Christmas? How about peace? 
what if we could give that person peace for Christmas? Wouldn't that be amazing? It would probably be the best gift we could ever give them. If Christmas is about peace, where exactly can we find peace that the angels promised? And how can we give others that peace this Christmas? Because who doesn't want peace? We all want peace. We want peace in our personal lives. We want peace in our families. We want peace in our communities. We want peace in our country. And we want peace in our world. Peace, in fact, is one of the most dominant themes in the entire Bible. It is referenced specifically over 400 times. And it's referenced in indirectly another few hundred times. We all have this deep-seated desire for peace in our lives because we were created for peace. But even though we were created for peace, and even though peace is a dominant theme of the Bible, peace is elusive. It eludes us personally, and it eludes us collectively in almost every sphere of our lives. And so this Advent season, we've been on this quest together to find peace. And as we discovered a few weeks ago, in the beginning, there was peace. The story from the first three chapters of the book of Genesis tells us that in the beginning, there was completeness, there was wholeness, or there was what was called shalom within the Trinity of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit living in completeness and wholeness. And out of their completeness and wholeness, they created the perfect environment so that we could live in completeness and wholeness. They created the perfect environment so that we could have peace. God created the perfect environment for us for peace. And He created the framework for us so that we could maintain peace. He gave us order. And He gave us diversity. And He gave us rhythms. And He gave us relationships. And He gave us responsibility. But then Adam and Eve, they questioned God's plan for peace. They distorted God's plan for peace. They denied God's plan for peace. And they ultimately disobeyed God's plan for peace. And when they did that, they brought sin into the world. And when they brought sin into the world, they destroyed the peace. Because that is what sin does. Sin destroys peace. And ever since that time, man has been on a quest to restore peace. But here's the problem. Man can't restore peace. Man can't fix what man broke. The only person who can restore peace is the person who created it in the first place. And so as soon as sin enters the world, God begins to enact His own plan to restore the peace. And God's plan was Himself. Or more specifically, God's plan was His Son. In John chapter 1 we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. 
The light shines into the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. The birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ have made peace a possibility again for those who will put their faith in Him and for those who will follow the model that Christ set out for us. When we put our faith in Christ, then we have peace restored in our hearts and in our minds. But it doesn't end there. Because it's great to get gifts. But Christmas isn't about receiving. Christmas is fundamentally a story about giving. The birth, life, death, and resurrection of Christ are collectively the pivot point on which all history balances itself. The God of peace sent the Prince of Peace to begin the process of restoring peace. After His death and resurrection, Christ appears to the disciples for the first time. And we read the account of this in John's Gospel in chapter 20. It says, On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and He stood among them. And He said, Peace be with you. In other words, He's saying, I am with you. I am peace. Peace is now with you. And after He said this, He showed them His hands and His side. And the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And again Jesus said, Peace be with you. And if I were one of the disciples, man, I would have been overjoyed too. I bet the disciples at this point, they're just ready to kick back, take a deep breath, and rest for a while. Because, let's be honest, it had been a long week for the disciples. In fact, it had been a long several years And now they finally had it. They finally had their long sought after peace. And if I'm one of the disciples, I'm thinking, it is time for a break. But the story doesn't end there. Because the God of peace didn't send the Prince of Peace just to restore peace for a small ragtag bunch of fishermen and tax collectors. What was the promise the angels made to the shepherds? I bring you Good noise, good news that will cause great joy for all people. So how exactly was that going to happen? Because up to this point, Christ had restored peace for at most a couple hundred people. What now? Well, the plan God had put in place way back in the garden begins with Christ, but it doesn't end with Christ. What was it again that Christ said when He greeted the disciples after His resurrection? He said, Peace be with you. I am with you. As the Father has sent Me, I am sending you. The God of peace sent the Prince of Peace to equip an army of peacemakers. Christ had foreshadowed this part of the plan way back at the very beginning of his ministry. In fact, at the beginning of his very first recorded sermon, he says this, 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And now it's come full circle again. And Jesus says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. It's kind of a commencement speech of sorts. And most of us probably wish that the commencement speeches we've had to sit through in our lives had been that short. Because if you've ever been to a high school or a college graduation, you've experienced the commencement speech. Some of them are good. Most of them are bad. Just a few of them are actually memorable. But whether they're good or bad or memorable, a commencement speech is designed to close the chapter on one piece of life and to move you forward into a new chapter. It's the entire point of a commencement ceremony. It's to create movement. Because the degree was never the point. The point is, what are you going to do with the degree? And the disciples, they finished their degree. The disciples have finished their three-year apprenticeship program, learning from Christ. And now he's giving them their commencement address. He says, yes. I came to give you peace, but I also came to make you peacemakers. What they had learned, they were now supposed to replicate. The gift they had received, they were now supposed to give away. And this is the process that God has designed that's supposed to continually replicate itself from generation to generation. Which is why as a church, we keep going back to Psalm 71 this fall as we look into our future together and the plan God has called to us, called us to, where David writes, As for me, I will always have hope. I will praise you more and more. My mouth will tell of your righteous deeds, of your saving acts all day long, though I know not how to relate them all. Even when I am old and gray, do not forsake me, my God, till I declare your power to the next generation, your mighty acts, to all who are to come. And the author of Hebrews, at the end of his letter, lays out God's entire plan in his own commencement address. In Hebrews chapter 13, the author writes, Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing His will. And may He work in us what is pleasing to Him through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And here in these two short verses, we see God's entire plan laid out. We see the source of peace. We see the restorer of peace. And we see the makers of peace. The God of peace sent the Prince of Peace to provide a means of restoring peace 
but also to equip an army of peacemakers that would work to expand his kingdom of peace forever and ever. And the first part of this little commencement address summarizes what God has done through Christ. And the second part reveals what God is doing through the people of Christ. And the author begins, Now may the God of peace. We always have to point back to the source. Because if we're not connected to the source of peace, we can never possibly share peace. He says, Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, and we could probably spend the next several months unpacking that one little phrase. But here it is in a nutshell. Our sin requires judgment. Our sin requires payment. Our sin results in death. In Christ paid the penalty of our sin. That was the promise in the garden when God said, I will crush the serpent's head. This was the plan that He began. The plan that unfolded for thousands of years pointing towards Advent and pointing ultimately towards the cross. That is how we are reconciled. But He says, once you're reconciled, now may the God of peace equip you with everything good for doing His will. May the God of peace equip you. And the Greek word has so much more meaning to it than our English word for equip. What it means is to mend what is broken and torn. You can think of it like a doctor resetting a broken bone. It means to put right everything that is amiss. It means to restore what is perfect. What the author is saying when he says, now may the God of peace equip you, He's saying, may the God of peace restore the completeness and the wholeness in your life. May the God of peace restore the order and the diversity and the rhythms and the relationships and the responsibilities that have been broken by sin. May the God of peace restore peace and shalom in your life through Christ so that you can do His will. And what was His will? As the Father has sent Me, so I am sending you. Go and make disciples. Go and be a peacemaker. Because peacemakers are called the children of God. Through Christ, we have the model and we have the means to restore peace in our lives. But peace doesn't really describe our earthly existence, does it? Every year, our governments and our nonprofits and our churches spend billions upon billions of dollars in an attempt to create peace. But despite the billions and billions of dollars that are spent year after year, there are very few who would claim that our world is any more peaceful today than it was a hundred years ago, 
a thousand years ago or two thousand years ago on that first Christmas. We don't have any economic peace. We don't have religious peace. We don't have racial peace. We don't have social peace. We don't have family peace. We don't have personal peace. Our news headlines are filled with stories of marches and sit-ins and demonstrations, rallies and protests, riots and wars. Disagreement and conflict seem to be the order of the day, and disagreement and conflict are the order of the day because our sin has broken peace. And there are now two kingdoms waging war for control over God's creation. The sin of man broke the order and the diversity and the rhythms and the relationships and the responsibilities. But spoiler alert, the outcome of the battle is certain. God does win. Amen. That's right. But what we have to decide is which side of the battle we're going to fight. Because we have to remember that peace is not the absence of conflict. But peace is the presence of justice and righteousness. Sin is the enemy of peace. Sin is the enemy of justice and righteousness. Wherever there is sin, there cannot be peace. The entrance of sin into the world is what broke our shalom. And the presence of sin will prevent shalom from being reestablished. So if we're going to be peacemakers in a world that desperately needs peace, what do we need to do? If we're going to be peacemakers, then we need to be a dynamic and a relevant and vital force in our communities and our world. Peacemaking is a creative and an aggressive force for goodness. Shalom, when used as a greeting, means that you have a desire for the person you're greeting to have all of the righteousness and the goodness that God could possibly give them. It's a wish for them to have the presence of all good things in their life. But if we wish for someone to have all of the righteousness and goodness that God can give them, but then we do nothing to help them achieve all of that goodness, then our wish for them is really an empty wish, isn't it? And so we have to ask ourselves, are we waging the battle for goodness and righteousness in our relationships and in our communities? Or are we so focused on our orthodoxy and so busy filling ourselves with more and more biblical knowledge that we're forsaking our role as peacemakers and forsaking our responsibility to influence those who need peace so desperately. Have we given up our influence by disengaging from the very relationships and neighborhoods and schools and community activities that so desperately need the influence of peace? Have we disengaged by instead investing our time and our resources, recreating our own Christian versions of those same things? The role of the church is to prepare us to be influencers in the world. 
It's not supposed to be a place where we can hide out from those who need to be influenced. The church has been called to engage, but if we're honest, the church is largely disengaged whether out of good intentions or out of fear, instead of investing and equipping and sending influencers into the world, we've invested in creating substitutes for the world. When we do that, is it really any wonder that our culture is declining when we've effectively removed our influence from it? If we're going to reach a culture in a community in a generation that so, so desperately needs God's peace. We need to engage in ways that are relevant. We need to engage in ways that exert positive and peaceful influences. We need to exert positive influences so that we can help restore order and diversity in rhythms in relationships, in responsibilities, in our personal lives, in our family lives, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, and in our workplaces. Just as Christ's peacemaking did, our peacemaking must extend to all types of reconciliation, to economic reconciliation, to racial reconciliation, to social reconciliation, to family reconciliation, to personal reconciliation. Instead of being people who delight in division, in bitterness, in strife, we must become people who delight in spreading peace, in restoring shalom. So what peacemakers do is they find points of agreement. We never want to compromise God's truth. There is hardly anyone in this world who is so ungodly immoral, rebellious, pagan, or ungodly that we can't find some point of agreement and connection with them to build a relationship on in order to bring them peace. Wrong theology and wrong standards, wrong beliefs and wrong attitudes, they do need to be faced and they do need to be dealt with. But those are not typically the best places to start the process of witnessing. If we want to be peacemakers, then we need to learn how to contend without being contentious. We need to learn to disagree without being disagreeable. We need to learn to confront without being abusive. And we must start with love. We must speak the truth in love. Christ came in grace and truth. We must start with whatever peaceful point of agreement we can find with somebody and build the relationship from there. We need to always give people the benefit of the doubt and we need to be patient with their blindness and their stubbornness. It's like we need people to be patient with our blindness and our stubbornness. This idea of finding points of connection and agreement in order to open the door to peacemaking is perhaps exemplified in no better than when Christ meets a woman one afternoon at a well. And the story is found in John chapter 4. Christ and his disciples are 
traveling from Jerusalem, which is in the south of Israel, to Galilee, which is in the north of Israel. And between Jerusalem and Galilee is Samaria. And most good Jews would go around Samaria if they wanted to travel from Jerusalem to Galilee. Because the Samaritans were sort of a, a mixed breed kind of people that the Jews really looked down upon. They had a long history of strife between themselves. And so the Jews didn't want to be influenced by the Samaritans. The Jews didn't want to be, they were fearful of the Samaritans. It's kind of like going through a bad neighborhood in the city. You just kind of steer clear of it, even if it's going to take you a little longer. So that's what most Jews would do. But Jesus and his disciples, as they're going from Jerusalem to Galilee, they decide to take the shortcut and they go right through Samaria. And as they're traveling one afternoon, they decide to stop for lunch. This little town called Sychar. And they stop for lunch and the disciples go into town to buy some food. And as they go into town, Jesus decides to take a break by the well on the outskirts of town. And as Jesus is sitting by the well taking a rest, a woman shows up. What you have to recognize is you didn't go to the well at lunchtime unless you were either an outcast or you were trying to hide something. And this woman was doing both. Because respectable women would have gone to the well either in the morning or the evening when it was cool. It was a social time of gathering and connecting, relationship building. But this woman comes to the well by herself at lunchtime. There she is. And there Jesus is. And if you understand the social norms at the time, you would say, awkward, because by being together at the well, they're breaking at least half a dozen social norms. In fact, if anyone had actually observed them together, there would have been problems. Right? It would have actually been scandalous for Christ to be seen talking with this woman at the well in the middle of the day. But Christ doesn't run away from the encounter. As he sees the woman coming, he doesn't leave. Instead, he stays and he engages her because Christ is on a peacemaking mission. And Christ treats her with love and compassion, but he also doesn't hesitate to confront her brokenness. He finds a connecting point with her in something as simple as a glass of water. And then he uses that connecting point to confront her brokenness. He confronts the brokenness of her relationships with the men in her life. He confronts the brokenness of her relationship with God through her false and wrong understandings of worship. Christ brings peace to her life. And what happens? She becomes a peacemaker. The social outcast becomes a catalyst for a complete revival in that town. Because that is what happens when God restores peace in our life. He completely transforms us and turns us into peacemakers. Peacemaking is not about appeasement. God's peace never evades issues. The bad news of the gospel must always precede the good news of the gospel because if we don't understand our brokenness, God's offer of peace will be worthless. God's peace is completely unlike the peace that our world seeks and strives for. 
God's peace has nothing to do with compromises or negotiated truces or statementship. God's peace knows nothing of the idea of peace at any price. God's peace does not gloss over or hide issues. God's peace does not rationalize and excuse. God's peace confronts problems and seeks to solve problems. But after confronting them and solving them, God's peace seeks to build bridges. It seeks to rebuild relationships between man and God, between man and others, and between man and all of creation. Because peace restores order and diversity and rhythms and relationships and responsibilities. If we're going to be peacemakers, then first we must be sure we have peace with God. Because if we're not connected to the source of peace, then there is absolutely no way that we can share peace. There is absolutely no way that we can be peacemakers. But if we are connected, then that is our charge. We need to be peacemakers. And we need to do it in the strength and the sufficiency of God. Because the world is broken. The world is a hard place. And it's more than any of us can handle on our own. In the beginning, God created an environment of perfect wholeness so that mankind could live in shalom. But we've each broken shalom. But the Prince of Peace came on that first Christmas day so many years ago to restore shalom for all mankind. He came to restore shalom for you and for me. And Jesus' offer of shalom is inclusive. He offered it to all men and women. He offered it to Jews and Samaritans and Gentiles. He offered it to outcasts and sinners and tax collectors and the poor. Everyone is welcome into God's shalom community. So the question is, are you part of God's shalom community today? Have you accepted His offer of peace? And if you have, then who are you offering peace to? And are there people in your lives that you need to be that you're not? Are there people in your lives that need peace? That there's something stopping you from offering it? The angel said it was good news for all people. We don't get to redefine what all people means. And so as we gather over the next few weeks with family and friends, neighbors and coworkers, who will we intentionally reach out to with peace? Who in our lives has broken order and diversity in rhythms and relationships and responsibilities? And how can we find a connecting point with them? A point of agreement where we can build or rebuild a relationship with the goal of extending peace into their lives. What do we want for Christmas this year? And what are we going to give for Christmas this year? Those are our Advent questions. Only seven shopping days left. If you want peace this Christmas, we need to think about where we're doing our shopping. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, thank you for the fact that you have pursued us for so many years. That you were willing to send your Son, the Prince of Peace, to be our peacemaker. And I pray that we would each, in our lives, take time to see the brokenness that surrounds us, that it would break our hearts the way it breaks yours, and that we would seek to restore peace wherever we can. In Jesus' name, amen.